All right, Revelation chapter 1, verse 10 and verse 11. I was intending to go through the whole chap, the rest of the chapter because a lot of what John says in, his, uh, in, in writing this vision that he's given uh, of Jesus, we will see uh, in particular in the letters, uh, those seven letters to the churches. Um, but uh, we're going to look primarily at verse 10 and verse 11, and then next week we'll run through um, the rest of the chapter. Verse 10 says, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and heard behind me a great voice as of a trumpet, saying, I am Alpha and Omega, the first and the last, and what thou seest write in a book, and send it unto the seven churches which are in Asia, unto Ephesus, and unto Smyrna, and unto Pergamos, and unto Tyratyra, and unto Sardis, and unto Philadelphia, and unto Laodicea. Let me say this before we get into the, uh, before we get started in verse ten. We we John addresses seven churches that were in Asia. He would most likely have been pretty well known through those churches. Um, and remember, the number seven is fullness or completeness. Um, and it, it though those are seven literal churches that he writes to. That represents the church as a whole throughout all of Christianity from then even until now. So uh, we're going to keep we need to keep that in mind simply because um, when we get into these letters in a couple of weeks, uh, we're going to see some commendations uh, that that Jesus gives of these churches. Some things are doing good. Um, I think there was only one church that re- that doesn't receive any con- commendation, but he also gives some condemnations of things they're doing wrong uh, or, or things they can improve on, and then he gives an exhortation at the end. So uh, understand that these are not church ages; they're not dispensations of the church. There's a study of church history does not even lend itself to each these seven churches that are addressed being seven church periods. Um, they are seven literal churches and then apply um, to the universal church as well. So going back to verse 10, when you, when you think of Jesus, um, what do you imagine him like? Are, are, there, uh, are there, and I'm not talking about in a physical way. I know there are, uh, matter of fact, um, I saw it on Facebook today, there was uh, a picture of what the popular Jesus looks like, the one that's painted for us today is kind of a blonde-haired, bl- uh, blue-eyed, kind of effeminate-looking guy. And then on the other side of it was what some people think he may have looked like, being from the Middle East, and it was kind of a darker skin, darker hair, bearded guy. Um, and I'm not talking about that. Um, I, I, don't, I, don't, I think that that debate's kind of fruitless, to be honest with you. But when you think of Jesus, when you're reading through the Scripture and you're pondering Jesus, what, what, what comes to your mind? I know some people will say, well, Jesus is love. And that's, that's natural for us to say that. Does, our, does our, our view of Him, does our thoughts of Him, do they, are they more in line with Scripture, with the Word of God, or are they more in line with tradition and maybe what men have said through the ages? Um, and there, there is a distinct difference because sometimes I think we, we put our, you know, what we would like Jesus to be like um, on top of Scripture rather than saying, okay, what is Jesus like? And so what we're going to see uh, in particular 
um, in, in, in throughout Revelation, uh, but, but we'll see some things about him next week at the, in the, the rest of this chapter. We'll see some things that we don't hear people normally say about Jesus. Um, we, we'll hear, uh, you, there's, it talks about his, that, uh, about burnished brass. Brass in the Bible is a, a, a reference to judgment. We don't think of Jesus being a judge or being the one who will pronounce judgment on fallen man. So, when we, when we, uh, when we have, when we think of Jesus, we ought to be thinking biblically of him. And, and in relation to that picture that I mentioned, the blonde hair, blue eyed Jesus, Isaiah fifty three said that he has no form nor comeliness, meaning that he he there was nothing that would stand out to people. There was he was not a good looking dude, right? I mean, he was probably at least an average looking guy. There's nothing about him that would have stand out, even though. He was uh, the Son of Man, the Son of God. Um, but nonetheless, um, we want to have a consistent view of who Jesus is. And that's exactly what Revelation does, is it paints this picture that you get from all of Scripture, when you put all of Scripture together, of, of what you get of Jesus. And what was uh, what's amazing, as I've, I've thought about over the last couple of weeks, the similarities between Hebrews and Revelation. I mean, they're both about Jesus, right? They're both about the Christ. Um, Hebrews uh, shows us that Christ is uh, the preeminent prophet, right? That uh, God has finally uh, and in, has finally spoke through Him, um, and then as the uh, preeminent priest that He ever intercedes on our behalf. But He done what those other priests couldn't do is that He offered a sacrifice that was to end all sacrifices. And so we see Christ in Hebrews as this preeminent priest, this preeminent um, prophet. And then we go to Revelation, and we see the preeminence of Christ as well. We see Christ as a preeminent judge, that He will one day judge um, the, the whole earth. He will judge uh, all of the unbelieving, and He will even judge those who in the church who have compromised and sided um, with, with the world. Um, you know, as I study Revelation, I my, my my thoughts of Revelation now are not what they were before. I've come to realize many don't see this book as exactly what it is. The very first part of Revelation says it's the revelation of Jesus. It's the unveiling of Jesus. Um, this is about Jesus, um, the unveiling of Him working in His church, working through His church, and working for His church throughout all ages. And I, when I say working for His church, um, you think of things that have happened over the years. Uh, just today, do y'all remember the guy, Jacob Cates, I mentioned, a pastor up in Canada that was arrested back in February, I think it was, was in prison for or in jail for five weeks, and then they let him out? Well, today, the Canadian government went and seized the church property. They've set up fences around the church property, and they, if to my knowledge, they have basically subpoenaed the whole church to go to court. Now, you say, how in the world could God be working in that? Could Jesus be working in that? And we may not see that immediately. I mean, what we don't know, what we don't see, we can only see from afar, is the testimony of the church, the testimony of the pastors. Um, and what we don't see is if God is working in those unbelieving governmental leaders, just like we can't um, 
see that with our leaders. So those are things that we need to be aware of. That, that And all, understand ultimately that when we see those things happen, when we see persecution like that take place, we may not see judgment immediately. But understand God's judgment is certain. It is sure. It will come to pass. Um, and that's going to be... Uh, that's going to be a terrible day if you um, have opposed his church and if you are an unbeliever. It will not be a good day. Um, as we'll see in each letter of the church, and I just mentioned um, about these character traits here in the rest of chapter 1, um, these churches that John addresses, a particular character trait or attribute of Jesus is going to be revealed. And if you'll, let me just show you what I'm talking about. Go to chapter 2. Um, So verse 1, he says, And to the angel of the church uh, of Ephesus write, These things have he that holdeth the seven stars in his right hand, who walketh in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. Now, we'll see this at the end of chapter 1, but just let me give you a brief explanation. Um, The seven stars, you'll see seven angels, that's the pastors of these churches. Um, And and the the candlesticks are the church themselves. You see in verse 2, he says, I know thy works and thy labor and thy patience and so on and so forth. Well, we begin to see in Ephesus that, something's, that uh, something is revealed about, about Jesus, um, that he knows these works. He knows the, the, the patience that they have endured under. And what was going on in Ephesus was a doctrinal issue. They, were, they had false teachers that came in um, that were teaching false doctrine. And so there began to be this doctrinal battle, this infighting, um, within the church, and, and he, his condemnation was, you've left your first love. Um, and, and so we'll see things like that as we work through these letters. Um, and it'd be, it'd be good if you could read from verse 12 down through verse 20, and then go read those letters to the churches, and you'll see uh, those things that are mentioned in the rest of this chapter 1 uh, mentioned uh, to these, uh, to these uh, churches. Um, last week we saw John addressing the church as brothers, not as an apostle over the church. He had authority to address the church as an apostle, but he displays a familial connection that all Christians have. If you have the Spirit within you and I have the Spirit within me, we have a bond that is greater than any blood bond um, that you can imagine. We, we have a bond of the Spirit, a unity of the Spirit. Um, and so we see this unity uh, between the people of God. Now, I don't know if you've ever experienced this. I remember uh, when we lived in Louisiana, um, I was pastoring the church, uh, a church down there. Um, I met this guy at work one day, and we just began to talk. And I could tell something was different about him. I, I didn't ask him if he was a Christian. I didn't know nothing. It was just a short conversation. But you could tell something different was about him. Well, later on, we got a chance to talk, and I found out that he went to um, a church there in the area, and we got to talking about that and had a little bit of fellowship. But when you when you experience that and you get to talk to someone like that, you realize that the Spirit God has put within them and the Spirit God has put within you begin to testify to one another. And, and there's a unity there. It doesn't matter what your background is. It really doesn't even matter what your denominational affiliation is. If they are born again and you are born again, then you you have a unity of the Spirit. You have a fellowship of the Spirit. And so um, there's that familial connection that, that John makes with them. He also 
identifies with their circumstances, that they were in tribulation, they were in persecution. That's where the church was at this time, and it's been that way throughout all of the ages. And, and then he gives the cause of the tribulation. It is the Word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. That's essentially, if you want to sum that up, that's the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we need to realize that if we are going to rightly proclaim the Word of God, if we are rightly going to proclaim the gospel according to the Scripture, then guess what? We're going to face some persecution. We're going to face some tribulation. And there may be some from within the church that we begin to face that. So um, that's, that's, where, that's where John's going with this. So verse 10, we see that he says, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day and heard behind me a great voice as of a trumpet. Um, it appears in, in this, so the Lord's day. What's the Lord's day? We call it Sunday, right? We just celebrated the Lord's Day. You don't hear very many people calling it the Lord's Day, but it is, well, every day is the Lord's Day. But nonetheless, Sunday being the Lord's Day, this was a tradition that started in the early church as recognition of the first day of the week. We don't, we don't worship as it were on Saturday, though each day should be lived as worship to God. But our primary gathering time is on Sunday, right? We gather as the body, uh, that has been scattered throughout the week. Uh, we gather corporately um, to sing praise, to pray, to hear the preaching of the Word, to fellowship, to have communion together. Um, that's the purpose of, to, to, for our gifts to encourage and exhort one another. But John is in... Think about this for a moment. John is in prison. He's at worst in prison. He's in exile. He's on this little bitty island in the Mediterranean Sea called Patmos, probably in, in hard labor or something of that nature. And he says, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. Now, most people would look at his circumstances and say, well, how in the world could John worship in such dire circumstances? We might even think, how can the, the Christians in China worship when their, very, when their very life is being threatened. We may even think, even, even right now, that the church up in Canada, how can they genuinely worship God now that their property has been seized? And the reality is, is that worship is not um, about a building, right? It's not about an experience. That There's a lot of churches that are trying to create experiences to manipulate the emotions of people to make them think that they've been in a worship service. And there's the, I mean, you see a lot of these things taking place. But nonetheless, John is in this attitude of worship. And worship really is somewhat of an attitude. I mean, we've got to come, you know, we've got, when we gather as the church, when we gather to worship together, we've got to come, and we ought to be praying, God, set a guard about my, my lips, my mind, that I would not speak or say anything to someone um, that would offend them, that would hurt them. Um, we ought to come with preparations of our heart, that our heart is right with God, that He um, would, would speak to us through His Word. Um, th- these are things that are intentional. It's not just something that we show up at the church and we expect something to happen. Well, we've got to prepare. Just as I have to prepare all week long to preach on Sunday, our hearts, not, I don't just prepare to preach, I prepare to worship as well. Because the act of preaching is an act of worship. The act of singing songs is an act of worship. Communion together is worship. Fellowship 
is worshiping. And what we're doing, you put all that together, you're ascribing worth to God by recognizing that He has given this church for fellowship, for the Word, for these other things, but also for our exhortation. And so John, in his in his circumstances, is worshiping God. I mean, I, I can't imagine what it would be like to be in exile, but he's worshiping God. He's in the Spirit, as it says. Now we could, sp- I mean, we could talk. Uh, I think I preached three or four sermons um, at the church in Pampa um, that I pastored on spirit-led worship. I, it, it's not a shallow subject to talk about. It is a deep subject that we can look at the Bible. But we don't. I don't want to spend that time here. But let me ask you this: as we're we're moving on here, when the Lord's Day approaches, are you in the Spirit? And, and look, I'm not talking about something superficial. I'm not talking about something spooky or, 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 or kind of eerie, but I'm talking about are you walking in the Spirit all week long so that when it comes to Sunday, you're in the Spirit to worship as we gather together. You know, if we would all have that mind, I mean, imagine what, imagine what God would do in our church. Imagine the, the blessings that would, we would see even <clears throat> excuse me, in our own life. So, John is in this attitude of worship, this mind of worship, and lo and behold, he hears a voice. Now, that's not to say, uh, I'm not saying that if we have this attitude of worship that we're going to hear these audible voices. That, that's not what, what the point is here. The point is that John, even in his circumstances, was worshiping God, and God comes to him to give him this revelation so that he will write these things in a book, as we'll see in the next verse, for the encouragement, for the exhortation of the church. That's something else we need to understand about Revelation. It's not just a book to be in awe about over-sensationalizing all the events here, but it's for the church. It's for our exhortation. John begins a description of his commission to write what he saw. Look at verse, uh, verse 10. He says, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, And I heard behind me a great voice as of a trumpet, saying, I am Alpha and Omega, the first and the last, and what thou seest, write in a book, and send it unto the seven churches which are in Asia, and Ephesus, and unto Smyrna, and unto Pergamos, and unto Tyratyra, and unto Sardis, and unto Philadelphia, and unto Laodicea. Um. So, what we see with John here is the introduction of his commission. We see, in part, his, his prophetic authority. We, we see the term here, the voice as of a trumpet. This is not anything that's new. Now, what we'll find as we work through Revelation is the allusions back to the Old Testament in prophecy. Um, The introduction of the commission uses the language of the prophet Ezekiel's repeated rapture in the Spirit. Turn to Ezekiel chapter 2. Ezekiel chapter 2. Verse 2. And the Spirit entered into me when he spake unto me and set me upon my feet that I heard him that spake unto me. Now what we see, we get a picture of 
the Spirit or Jesus coming to Ezekiel and even coming to John, and what is the response of, of these two guys? They're going to fall on their face, right? They, they, they're, meeting, they're meeting in the Old Testament. There's a, a, a pre-incarnate meeting of Christ with Ezekiel, and what he does is fall on his face. We see that with Daniel. We see that with others who meet Jesus face to face. They fall down on their face before him. Um, John MacArthur uh, wrote a book. I don't remember the title right off the bat, but in it he's talking about a man that he had a conversation with that said every morning while he's shaving, Jesus comes and meets him. And John MacArthur said, I got one simple question. Do you stop shaving? I mean, do you, and, and when, for people that would say, well, I saw Jesus face to face, what is our response? Well, according to the scripture, it ought to be that we fall down on our face before him. And that's not, but, but when we, and that goes back to what I talked about, how we view Jesus. That most of us don't have that high of a view of him that we would fall before him on our face. But nonetheless, we get this idea from the Old Testament. There's other places in the Old Testament that this is mentioned as well. This identification with prophetic authority is enforced by the description of the voice that John hears as a great voice, as a trumpet. You ever heard a trumpet? They're pretty loud, aren't they? I mean, they you, you can barely blow on them and they're pretty loud. Um, but So that's, that's the, the, the idea that we're getting behind this. Um, this. This idea of a trumpet uh, to these churches would have brought uh, to remembrance uh, that Moses heard when, he, when Yahweh revealed himself on Mount Sinai. And going back to, we won't turn there, but go back to Exodus. There was that loud voice um, that demanded attention. This idea is emphasized further by the command to write in a book. And, it, it's, and the whole idea behind the voice as of a trumpet is that it demands attention and it demands our obedience. I, I mean, you hear people that's got a very strong voice. I mean, it demands attention, right? You, you, I think of Adrian Rogers, probably one of the the best voices of a preacher I've ever heard. I mean, it just, it held your attention. Whether you agreed with him or not, it held your attention. Um, and that's the voice of Jesus. It sounds as a trumpet. It raptures um, our attention. Um, this idea is emphasized further by the command to write in a book, which likewise reflects the charge given by Yahweh to his prophetic servants to communicate to Israel the revelation they received. Now, what's the significance of writing it in a book? Well, it gives the idea of permanency, right? You could say something to someone, and it really, in our day and age, it doesn't have that permanent. Like back in the day, when probably when my grandfather was a young man, that men said stuff and they shook on it, and their word was their bond, right? Well. The idea of writing something down speaks to permanency. It speaks to, and even the idea of writing going way back was it wasn't like having a pen and you could write with a ballpoint pen or gel pen like we have, but it, it was engraving, chisel and hammer kind of stuff that you're engraving in stone. You hear the phrase written in stone. It speaks to permanency, right? It speaks to something that is going to last. And that's the idea that John has here. He's writing the vision. He's writing what he is given 
um, it's going to have some permanency. In other words, it's going to have a long-term effect. It's going to have a long-term blessing on those who will hear the prophecy of this book. The reader um, would have been steeped in the Old Testament, would perhaps discern that all such commissions in the prophets were commands to write testaments of judgment against Israel. Now, we need to understand about Revelation is it's it's a it's a document that involves judgment. It's a document that records the judgment that is going to come upon those who oppose um, the church of God. Now, in relation to the prophets writing these testaments as judgment against Israel, look at Isaiah chapter thirty. And if you even read through the prophets, you, you see these, this idea that these prophets recorded these prophecies and, and things that, the, that God gave them that they often involved judgment, uh, they, in particular in relation to Israel. Um, yeah, Isaiah 30, verse 8. Now go write it before them in a table and note it in a book that it may be for the time to come forever and ever. Judgment that was given to Isaiah to be passed down to, to, uh, to Israel um, It's to be recorded. It's to, to have some permanency there. Now, let me say this again, that at this early stage of Revelation, we see that there's a hint of a major, uh, its major concern will be judgment. Judgment for those who would come against the church and judgment for the, of those in the church who compromise with the world. <clears throat> um, so the trumpet sound in Revelation calls attention to an important message and the intensity of the voice demands alertness and obedience, as I said a moment ago. And that's that, though we don't hear that trumpet sound at this moment, this ought to call us to be alert to the Word of God. It, it ought to call, cause us to be alert to what He says. As a matter of fact, we will see this at the end of each letter. He that hath an ear to hear, he that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit has to say, something to that effect. And what's He talking about? Those who have... Uh, not physical ears per se, but those who have the Spirit of God, let them hear what the Spirit has to say. It's the Spirit that communicates with us when the Word of God is being preached. And so what he's saying is those that have ears, let them obey. The word hear there implies obedience as well. All right, moving on here and then verse 11. Um, now here what, here's what we see Jesus saying right off the bat. I'm Alpha and Omega the first and the last. Now, um, this Alpha and Omega, I mean, Alpha is the first letter of the Greek alphabet. Omega is the last letter of the Greek alphabet. What's the significance? This is a declaration in, in him saying, I'm the Alpha. This is a declaration that he is the cause of creation. He's not a created being by God, but Jesus Christ himself is the cause of creation. We see this in John chapter 1, um, and also even in John 1, 15 through 30, <clears throat> him being Alpha speaks to his preeminence. Which if you think about that for a moment, we, we hear the term talk Alpha male. What is that? Someone who's dominant, someone who, 
who has a dominant personality, someone who, who might uh, try to force their hand or force their way. <coughs> the preeminency of Jesus Christ. Now, what about Omega? Well, this is the Christ who brought all things into existence will one day bring them to their determined end and, by, and, and that by His return. Look at 2 Peter uh, chapter 3. That one's in close proximity to Revelation. 2 Peter chapter 3. <clears throat> but the day of the Lord. Now, we saw the Lord's day in Revelation referring to Sunday. The day of the Lord here is referring to the return of Christ. Will come as a thief in the night, in the which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. The earth also, and the works that are therein, shall be burned up. The one who created, the one who spoke this thing into existence, will be the one who burns it up for the new creation, for the new heaven and the new earth. That will be his final judgment upon this fallen world. Um, so John has told us to record this vision in a book um, and, and what's neat I will not take the time to go there I'll close out here in a few moments um, is the contrast between John being told to write these things in a book and Daniel being told to seal it up that the, the vision won't go anymore and, and what we get a picture of is that where Daniel left off John picks up with Revelation, giving further evidence and further clarity to what uh, Daniel recorded, in, in particular the last four chapters of the book. Um, the purpose for recording this vision um, and, and putting it in a letter is, is obvious in verse 11 there, is to send it to the, 11, to the seven churches. Those churches that were in, in uh, Asia at that time, but also to encourage those guys in their tribulation and their persecution, and it's for us as well. It's for the church um, universal, whether we're currently in persecution or tribulation or whether uh, we're looking forward to it or whatever the case may be. And, and it encourages us to patiently endure to the end. That's another theme that we see in Revelation that you see in Hebrews, right? We're, we're kind of in that chapter 6 at the end where he's encouraging them to patiently endure. And that's what John's doing is he's giving this vision of who Jesus is. And, and even getting into the letters, he's calling them to patiently endure no matter what. So, for example, what we could do as Valley View Baptist Church in praying for Grace Life Church in Alberta, Canada is that God would help them to patiently endure to the end, no matter where this may go. It may be that the church in Canada is fixing to have to go underground, as it were. They're, they're probably, <coughs> not probably, could be about to start meeting in basements. And look, if it's in North America, just a little bit north of the border, you think it could come here? Absolutely it could come here. We need, we need to look at these situations, even looking in places further away from us. We need to look at these places and say, God, help me to patiently endure when my time comes. Help me to patiently endure when my time comes. I've got over my desk, I wrote on a 3x5 on a card, uh, 1 Corinthians uh, 4, 
1 and 2 um, that a minister is to be, uh, to be faithful. And I wrote on there, be faithful no matter what. And that will be our motto as Christians is that we will patiently endure, we will be faithful no matter what. So, as the church, what are we to do? Take heart. Take courage. That we would patiently endure to the very end. And look, as we can read, as we will go through Revelation, you know what we're going to see? The outcome's already been determined. Jesus has already won this war. He's already won these battles. And it's for us to patiently endure whether He brings us home in death or whether we get to see His second return. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your Word and oh, the encouragement that it brings to us each time we look at it and study it and read it and ponder it and meditate upon it. Father, we do pray for Brother James Coates and the elders at Grace Life Church and Lord, the members there in Alberta, Canada. Father, we pray that they would patiently endure in this trial. And Lord, we pray that Your divine sovereign hand would be seen in bringing these unbelieving justices and unbelieving governmental agents to faith in Christ. God, that You would extend mercy and grace to them as they stand opposed to Your church. God, we pray that above all You would be glorified not just in that situation, but Lord, as we are here in North Texas, Lord, out in the middle of nowhere, as it were, that we would be a faithful body of believers persevering through every trial that comes our way. And God, that we would be a a, a people that testifies to Your goodness and Your grace and Your gospel no matter what may stand in our way. We praise You and we thank You in the name of Jesus. Amen.